You are now listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K, produced by the Carson Institute, which aims to provide a conversational space to discuss, debate, and explore answers to America's most urgent questions on racial, economic, and social injustice. I am delighted today to start our series with Erica Bridgeford, one of the 2022 Black Marylanders to watch, the co-founder of Baltimore Ceasefire and executive director of Baltimore Community Mediation Center. I am so excited to have you here, Erica. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So we have a lot to talk about, and I know that you probably heard so many of the same questions. So I've tried, though I know you very well, to come up with some different questions today for the audience. So, yes, I know. So we'll start with the most obvious. But, but can you talk about your work as a community mediator and as a peace activist, if you describe yourself as a peace activist. Yeah, so I am recently getting comfortable describing myself as a healer and a miracle worker. Um, I've always, I'm definitely a peace activist and definitely a peace warrior. Um, my work is all about making sure people have skills to resolve their conflicts, thinking about how they um, perceive conflict, how they behave in their own conflicts, ways to really work on understanding other people and listen and speak for your own needs, being honest and, and authentic without attacking, right? All of those kinds of things that we need in our everyday lives so that things don't escalate into something tragic. Um, but then also with the ceasefire work, not only is it about trying to, you know, motivate everyday people to do the things that they can do to make Baltimore or their environment a little bit more peaceful, but it's also about really celebrating life. It's about honoring life. It's about changing our reaction to murder in Baltimore toward one that is really about honoring the life and not just um, tallying body numbers, but really honoring the energy and the life Force, force that the, the person still is. Can you talk a bit about the ceasefire? I mean, I remember when it launched and it was just amazing, just the idea that we're going to get people from every walk of life in this city to not just commit to, right. to pursuing peace, but also getting things for people to do. So instead of choosing that, we have something else for you to do. Yeah. So my friend Tracy Ford, who's also a mediator and a mediation trainer, talks about how violence is a language. And so with anti-violence, we're asking people not to be violent. So it means you're literally taking a language away from a lot of people. One of the only languages they ever really have learned how to use effectively. Right. And so if you're going to tell people not to do the thing that America teaches them to do every day, you have to replace that with something. And so we replace it with what does celebrating life look like to you? If you were filling your space, your neighborhood, whatever, with joy and affirming life and just being happy that we're alive, what kinds of things would you be doing? And so when you give people permission or you ask people to think about what 
celebrating life looks like to them, they're going to take that chance. And that's what you saw happen with the Baltimore Ceasefire 365 movement is just being asked, what does celebrating life look like to you? What does loving Baltimore look like to you? People had all kinds of answers for that. And so what it looks like is events happening all over the city during Ceasefire weekends that are planned by organizations and planned by your neighbors next door, right? So everything from small events to big events, um, but it's an opportunity for people to really think about how important it is and how much it matters that our lives are here and present and accounted for. Can you go back a little bit? Because you said something that that really makes me think. I mean, as a mother, you know, raising sons in this culture, watching right. violence play out before them. Can you talk about the ways in which we all learn the language of violence and it's supported and almost right. encouraged in many ways? So, so we can start at how violence is woven into the fabric of America's way of doing things, right? Um, most historically, a lot of the ways um, America has gotten anything done has been through um, conquering, raping, pillaging, dropping bombs, you know, stealing people's bodies and culture and history, right? So we know that America's way a lot of times is to teach that violence is power within a system that then says, well, in order for some people to have what looks like power, they have to be standing on the necks and backs of a lot of people, you know, under them within that same system. So you build a system that can only survive with some people at the bottom of it. And then you teach everybody that violence is the way to get power. And so it means that we don't honor in this society. You don't learn all through elementary, middle, and high school, how do you express yourself when you feel offended by something somebody said? How do you work on understanding? How do you notice when you're assuming what somebody is saying and you're jumping to the conclusions or you're projecting your own stuff onto other people? How do we clear up misunderstandings in a peaceful way? So we celebrate um, that, that survival of the fittest mentality, the me versus you, the I just want to win mentality. We celebrate those kinds of things instead of teaching ourselves the power of when we listen to one another and when we collaborate with one another and when we take accountability for when we were wrong or we misunderstood right so if you if you think about like where have you really learned those skills there's not going to be a lot of places. You may have been privileged or blessed or fortunate enough that you had those examples in your life and you learn those things. But on a regular everyday basis, most people can't tell you where they learn positive and healthy communication or where it gets nurtured on a regular basis. So we learn it in our families, in our homes. We learn it at school. We turn on the TV and we see, you know, examples of violence from country to country even, not just between community members. And so everywhere you look, we're taught that not only is conflict inevitable, which it is because it's just a disagreement between people, right? But we're also taught that violence is inevitable when conflict happens. And so there's not a lot of nurturing. How, what does peaceful conflict resolution look like? And that idea of people thinking peaceful and conflict in the same sentence. 
because to a lot of people, conflict means that violence is the next step. I'm getting ready to pop my trunk. I'm getting ready That's to right. throw hands. That That's I'm getting right. ready to clear the space because I'm standing to lose more than just the fight. Yeah. It's about respect, yeah. it's about my standing. So can you right. talk about that? How do we help people, particularly young people, talk yeah. about this idea of that you're not losing respect when you choose peace or resolution That's rather right. than violence? Yeah, so we've we've taught people to mis we misidentify ourselves, um, and we misidentify where our true power is. So when you believe that your power is in conquering somebody else physically or even emotionally, like if whoever is the pettiest, whoever says the meanest thing, whoever you know has the best sarcasm, whoever punches somebody in the face stronger, whoever has the biggest gun, right? Or there there are levels to it, but all of it is about our mis, um, misinformation about where our power actually lies. What's the seat of our power? The seat of your power is in being authentically everything you were created to be. That's always going to be your true power. When you really go, well, who do I decide to be in relation to this difficult thing, in relation to me feeling disrespected right now? So there are some things that absolutely happen in the brain when we feel disrespected, right? That your brain goes into fight, fight, flight, and freeze mode when you believe that somebody is either violating a value that's really important to you or seeing you in a way that's opposite from how you view yourself. The brain says to the body, up. Oh, our sense of well-being is threatened right now. And so we go into fight, flight, or freeze mode, right? And so we need to be taught when, when, when you're not actually threatened right now. You know, like, yes, your feelings are hurt, but you're not actually threatened right now. And so one thing that I, I say to people a lot is that I'm actually blessed and privileged in this way to have been born with one hand and given the parents that I was given, right? Because although they were teenage parents when they had me, what they taught me is that things that people say about me don't define me, right? So people were going to disrespect me my whole life. I'm a black girl born in West Baltimore with one hand. So almost everything about my demographic and this system of things, this whole system is designed to come against me, to dishonor me, to disrespect me, to not believe in everything that I can be. And so people looked at me and assumed that I'm broken, call me all kinds of names, you know, talk trash about me, try to bully me, all kinds of things happened in my life. But I was able to know just because they say those things about me, I don't have to own those things as truth. I know what my real power and my, what my real, my real truth and strength is. Um, but even in that, it can be challenging, right? And so it's really important that we do provide safe spaces to vet to one another. You need a, we say the Baltimore Peace Challenge, it's a challenge for everybody, right? right. I don't just go around all happy-go-lucky people. All, <laughs> two seconds from getting this nub, Dr. K. This right. is all bone <laughs> and muscle right here. You know what I'm saying? And so it is a piece, is a choice that we have to make, but absolutely we have to be taught how to perceive things a little bit differently. And I think we've gotten to a place where we're so fragile a lot of times. Somebody can't just say something about you without you feeling like their whole life needs to be ended because you are, are, are owning the littleness that they're trying to hand to you. 
right? And I, when you know your greatness and you understand that you're not little or powerless, what people say about you, it may impact you, but you process it and you ask yourself, well, what's my truth? And how do I respond in my own truth? Now, in getting to that, because you, you tap into something that, that we're talking about now. When we look at what's happening around society, we're watching high profile black folks committing suicide, choosing to end their own life. And mm. so when I was doing some study, like, well, there's a difference between depression, be, being in a place where you feel that, oh, everything's against you and despair, where you're like, this never going to change. Yeah. So it is part of this choosing peace is it also about choosing love? Because I wonder where love fits in and say, you know what? It doesn't matter. Depression, despair. I love me. And I know if I keep pushing, if I keep moving forward, I can transcend whatever this is, even if it looks good on the outside. Yeah. Whatever I'm fighting with, I can transcend it. Yeah. So absolutely. Everything starts at love. People often, again, misunderstand the power of love and think love is some weak, fragile thing that can't survive things. But the truth of the matter is the only way out of anything is through it. And so even when we feel those, the feelings of hopelessness and despair and all of those kinds of things, we often want to escape it because we believe if I really allow myself to feel this thing, it's going to take me out. It's bigger than me. I can't take it. I can't handle it. Um, and I think it's important having tried to commit suicide in 2004 and spent seven days on the psych ward. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes when days are hard, fighting suicidal thoughts and having to remind myself that just because the thought comes, I don't have to deal with all the lists. It's like once you try to kill yourself, you're very aware that you're choosing to stay here. Like it's a it's a thing that's just with you from then on, right? Because you've actually crossed that line. And so you're aware it's not even about choosing to die or not. It's about, do I choose to live every day? And then what kind of life do I want? And so if I'm going to choose to live, it is an act of self-love to when I'm depressed, talk out loud to people about it and not isolate. Right. And when I'm feeling hopeless, that there are safe places that I can go and people I can talk to instead of isolating, because when I say it out loud, I'm able to see how temporary those emotions are. I'm able to see that I can survive them. I can see that what I'm made of and what I'm created to be is bigger than the thing that I'm feeling right now, or even the experience I'm going through right now. But again, those things are, are much easier said than done when you don't have healthy, when you're not, when your mental health is not nurtured, when, when self-love is not a thing that's nurtured. <laughs> in your life um, because what happens is over time, enough hopelessness, enough despair, there's a chemical thing that's happening inside of your brain and body now that, that then kicks in and causes levels of depression that you can't think your way out of a lot. So, you know, like you need a lot more than just, you know, positive affirmation in yourself out of that joint. You need 
a lot of work, a lot of emotional, mental, spiritual, all of that kind of physical work. I know like even just drinking enough water that I'm supposed to drink every day and getting enough rest. Like, but we have all of these narratives that are like, I'll sleep when I die and all kinds of things that are based, you know what I mean? That are based in this idea that, oh, is what you produce and whatever looks like being productive to other people is all based in capitalism. It's all, it's not based in really loving ourselves and being the best that we can be. Capitalism is something that weaponizes our vulnerability. I mean, it oh, takes all the time. everything from us. What you just said, that idea, and I've heard that all my life. I mean, from Black folks, don't worry, you'll, you'll sleep when you die. Right. Which means work and work and produce and produce, even at the expense of your own health yeah. and your own well-being, because it's about what you produce rather than right. about who you are. Right. And what's happening in the meantime. Right. So if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you are dealing with all kinds of trauma and stress in your life, you're doing that. So some people are telling you, just keep pushing, just keep stuffing your emotions, just keep, you know, doing all of that stuff. And so you're literally just being eaten away at from the inside out. And so it is hard to notice the difference between what you really are and what the despair is, right? And separating yourself from those things, from that in knowing, standing inside of your true self. That's the work. Now, you know, one thing that, that irritates me, um, Erica, is that we tell, we particularly tell Black children in economically challenged situations, well, you have grit. Grit is about you going out and standing and waiting for the bus, even though private schools are home because they would never send their kids out in this weather. You go out in the dark and you stand there. You don't have any books. You don't have any lunch. 77% of you aren't reading on grade level, but just have grit. Like there's something destructive and dangerous about teaching black children. You know what? It doesn't matter if you don't have anything. You just have to keep pushing until you die. Yeah. So what's real wild about life, right, is so, yeah, weaponizing what is really real against us is so toxic, right? Because in real life, there is much to be said that as Black people in America, the fact that we have not been wiped off the face of the earth, given everything that continues to happen to us intentionally being done to us, right? There's a lot to be said for we got to be some dope something. Like, how are they still standing with any sanity? Why are they, why are Black people not the ones just going on shooting sprees every time you turn around? Just shoot, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot to be said for what we endure and how resilient we are. Absolutely, there's a lot to be said for it. That doesn't make it right that we are put in the position to have to be resilient all the time. Like, I should have to be resilient all the time. I should wake up with beauty and abundance and opportunities to know my greatness. Like, that's what I should be living in. And then when life just happens and a bad situation comes that I can't control, then let me find out that I can conquer some stuff and no weapon formed against me shall prosper. But every day I gotta wake up the weapons in my face and show how resilient I am and how strong I am and how much grit I have. And again, so I misidentify myself and I believe that my resilience and my grit is the thing that makes me me, 
right? right. And that is a response to something being done to you. Right. That's right. Your true self, yes, is going to show up and protect you and fight for its worth. But I shouldn't have. You shouldn't put people in a in a situation where they have to constantly show and prove. My dad was a Black Panther, and when I was little. You know, you hear people say all the time, you know, oh, black people, you got to show up and do it 10 times better. You got to be there earlier. You got to stay there later. You got to, right? You got to. And my father, every time somebody, he heard somebody say that in my presence, even if it was just like on TV, he would immediately turn to me and say, we do, white people are not our measuring stick, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, and I know when people say it, they mean something positive. But he wanted me to understand, do not swallow and digest this idea that whatever you see white people doing, that's your measuring stick and you should start measuring yourself against that. No, you should not. Don't don't do it. Right. And that that's really important. So I measure myself against what my highest vision version vision of myself is and what's my best today. And sometimes my best is getting on the interview while I'm still laying in bed. And sometimes my best, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? It's showing up. I know what you're saying. For y'all, you know, it just, it depends. So, um, yeah. I like that. I I know my dad used to always, his thing was when people say you have to be twice as good. He said, because that kind of belief means you start by thinking they're already better than you. And your part. He said, yeah, that's, that, that's very destructive when you think about it. That no, no matter what, the white ladder. Always. The ladder is <laughs> always. always there. I'm glad you yeah. did in terms about, you know, so, sometimes it's just about being in this moment. I, I wonder, um, Erica, yeah. if that's something that, that COVID 19 showed us that this system will destroy us, it will spit mm. us out, um, mm. and it. it but it cannot continue unless we give it permission to, right? So Jeff yeah. Bezos wouldn't be a bazillionaire if we weren't all buying stuff off Amazon. Not you and I individually. I mean, collectively. Yeah, yeah, every, oh, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's surviving off of us. Did yeah. we learn that lesson during COVID? Like, what have you seen? So um, I think that, well, we know, right, that this pandemic, exacerbated and brought to the forefront all of the pandemics that already existed, that we knew we were already living in, right? This wasn't being called a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I think what it did is the things that people are able to normally say, oh, that really doesn't have anything to do with me. Or, oh, you know, that's, oh, that's so sad that that's happening to some other people, right? we all got to see how one we really are, Mm. right? Because all of us were going to the market, couldn't find no toilet paper. You know what I'm saying? When, When you realize how many people could not afford just to have a face mask. Like the conversations in the early pandemic were, well, why don't people just rip up their shirt and tie it around their face? I don't have a shirt to rip up and tie around my face. What are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like, and so realizing like a lot of things got exposed and came to the surface and people could not help but notice, oh, America is a racist place. Mm-hmm. Injustices are still happening to black people. They still being killed by police officers in the middle of a pandemic. Like, you know what I mean? Like things happened that made people realize 
just because it's not directly happening to me, if it's happening to anybody, it's going to affect me. Right. And you couldn't ignore it. You couldn't go after work and have some drinks and make pretend it wasn't because you got to stay in the house. You know, like the things we were used to doing to deal with our stress and deal with what we couldn't do those things anymore. You got to sit still. And we're all mostly looking at screens. We're looking at phones. We're looking at social media. We're looking at. Right. And so you're seeing all of this information, all of these things happening to people, all of these experiences people were having. And so I'm really hopeful that it that 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 it helped people to notice that if I'm not doing something about the injustices in this world, if I'm not trying to do at least one little thing about something, then I'm a part of why it continues. Complacence is a part of why injustices continue because everybody can get comfortable and all of the injustices can just hide in plain sight. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so, you know, so, so I'm hoping that people, that it, and you know, it did become this thing where, you know, everybody now has their Black Lives Matter statement at their job. And you know what I mean? It's the sexy thing now to, to show that you care about social injustice, trans lives matter. And like everybody, you get it, right? We get it. But I'm hoping that it's not like, you know, when Trump, um, when Trump won the first, when Trump one and there was the 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 march you know and all of the white ladies showed up with their hats and everything and we kept saying that's real cute and i know some of y'all serious but will this many white women go hard about social injustice the whole four years this man is in office like is, is this the keep this same energy how mad y'all are right now please keep the same energy the whole time this man, and I can't say that, you know, by and large, I've seen this swarm of white women energy, you know, really being involved and committed to social justice. I can't say that. It's, it was a moment. It was a moment, though, you know, and I, I, people are that way a lot of times where we get really wrapped up about something when it's happening. And then we, it's easy to just go back to what we're familiar with. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that enough of us got jolted into doing whatever our something is. I mean, I was very hopeful. I mean, I, I, I tend to be very cynical. I believe I'm a, a pessimist with optimistic leanings, right? I like to believe that the best <laughs> is coming, but but I, I see the numbers. We had like 70% of white folks were in the Black Lives Matter right after George Floyd was killed so violently on camera. By the end of the summer, it was less than 20%. They were like, you know, I am done with, I mean, you know, it's getting hard work. hard work. And so, but you do the hard work all the time. So can you talk about what is the cost to you? Emotionally, socially, psychologically, to keep showing up in spaces where black bodies have fallen, blood has been spilled. Um, that's That's a really good question. The cost is great. And I, 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 I'm like that, um, I'm like that, you know, when you go to the emergency room and there's a two year old that has 104 fever and nobody believes the child is sick because they just running around and messing with stuff and like that baby not sick. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I'm, <laughs> I'm like that. I'm, I'm like, because 
I, I appear to people that I'm some kind of like energizer bunny thing that's just always optimistic and always right. Um, there are things that happen in the spiritual realm with me. So, like for example, there was a space and time. So, in general, when ceasefire weekends come. I can always feel when somebody is about to be killed and there are things that happen. My body will literally get stuck. It has happened where my body has gotten stuck in the same, however that person's body was when they got killed, my body will be stuck like that for a few minutes. And then later when I get the phone call from the police department that somebody got killed that day and we find out the story, we find out, oh, they were seated in the front seat of their car when they got killed. That's why you couldn't, you know what I mean? So it's just things like that happen where I can feel, and then not just during ceasefire weekends, there was a long period last year where I could feel every murder in the city, like my level of anxiety, my just things that happened in my body and in my spirit. Um, and so when you decide you're going to face an energy like violence and murder, it's not the same kind of self-care. And I'm I'm still really learning how much Reiki I need, how much sleep, how much water, how many float therapy sessions I need. Who are, There are people who I'm just not allowed to speak to anymore. These people can't hug me. They can't touch me. They cannot because their energy has been so toxic. Wow that I just, and, and I'm the, like, I speak to everybody, even if I don't mess with you like that, I'm still like, hey, good to see you, how you doing? There's some people, they not, they can't, they can't have any access to my energy anymore. And so, um, and what's real wild about it to me too, is how much doing the work feeds me and girds me, right? Cause, cause physically, Given the amount of murder that I've seen myself and that's personally impacted me and the fact that I know what a bullet flying past my ear sounds like, right? I should be triggered by going into spaces where murder just happened. I should like, you know, on paper, I shouldn't be able to do this work, but it is when I'm not doing what I'm called to do that I go into real bad depressions, that I get real miserable, that I get real. And so even when it feels challenging and hard and is an emotional strain, showing up for mothers and fathers, showing up for families, kissing the concrete where a body fell. When I tell you those things give me a second wind mm -hmm. to show up for whatever the next thing is I'm supposed to be doing. And that's how you know when something is for you to do and what's not for you to do. You know what I mean? Because it feeds me when it should be triggering me and draining me. But I also have to be very, I have to pay attention to and accept how it has shifted my relationship with the outer world, the seen world and the unseen world. Like I'm just not the same as I was in 2017 when the ceasefire first started. You couldn't have told me that I would be and feel on the inside the way that I am right now and becoming this person. It's, it's a, it's a, um, it calls for a lot of me and it requires me to take seriously everything that it takes to be me in the world, right? I, do I have enough joy to be me in the world? Do I have enough, do I have enough healing practices around me? Am I eating the right foods? Am I exercising enough? Like what does it really require for me to be everything I'm called to be in the world? 
it's a lot. And when I don't take it seriously, I suffer. I came to, to one of, of the healing sessions that you did. It was after one of my coworkers at Morgan State mm-hmm. University had been killed. And so I was there when you, when you were lighting the sage and when you were going up, it's the first time I've ever come. Yeah. And I got back in the car with, with my family, with my sons, with my husband. I was a wreck. I mean, I cried yeah. from the time I got in the car. We just had to go home. And I remember going home and telling my sons, I said, you know, you have to know what you're called to do. I said, Erica must be called to do that work. Because if I'm feeling this way for a coworker, I didn't even know. Yeah. I can't imagine the type of pain you must go through because Baltimore's small. You grew up here. Like you have connections to all these spaces, probably all these families in a different way, and yeah. yet you still have to rise and yeah. show people the light. Yeah, yeah. And and I know that that is what, and my process as a healer often is that I absorb pain that's in the space so that it can do alchemy inside me and come out cleansed and healed and as something else. And so because I know that that's my process as a healer, I have to do work to constantly get people's pain up off me, like the cleanse stuff off of me and out of me. But I've had to do, since we've been doing sacred space rituals, my loved ones have been killed. I've had to do rituals for people that I love. When Tata got killed, I went to that space before the ritual that everybody came to. I needed to go there that day and do stuff that nobody else was going to see happen first. You know what I mean? Because he was my homeboy. One of my cousins got killed. And that was the, that, that was the first time. Cause a lot of times I was scheduled, you know, seven to 11 rituals in one day. And I'm just bam, 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 going from spot to spot. And if there were any other ceasefire ambassadors or squad, like tagging along with me that day, they would be like, well, are we going to take a, break the use the bathroom and eat like I was just go. and so I had to remember you know to slow it down but when my cousin Justin got killed I scheduled I scheduled rituals that day but because it was so personal to me I knew I needed an hour break before the last ritual I did and the one that I did with him you know for him um and so I still honor my humanity I don't care how much of a miracle worker here lady like my humanity shows up and when it's my people who get killed I always go to the spot and do something ahead of time before the ritual that everybody comes to because what I don't want is for people to come to the space where the parts of me that's just falling apart you know what I mean I do that with me and it might sound weird to people but when somebody I love gets killed and I go to the space that's between me and that me and that person you know it's the space for me to lay in the ground where they were screaming and hollering and doing whatever it is I need to do burning whatever smoke I need to burn right there like all the saying all the prayers all of the things so that when people show up to watch me bless a space, um, I have something different that I'm a different energy that I'm able to share with everybody. Now in Baltimore City, you know, everyone wants to give you know an idea of like why is there virus? We're always talking about the virus. To me, that's the tree, right? That's the tree. 
what about the root? Like for us to get to this space, we got to talk <laughs> about the roots of violence and not the result of it. So can you talk about, based upon your experience, what are the roots of violence in this city? This is one of my favorite things to talk about, Dr. K. Okay, so recently in, in, in this grant writing season, right, that I'm in as an executive director, I could not one more time write certain terms because I had, I realized I needed to decolonize my mouth, mm. right? So there are terms that we use when we're even scratching the surface about the root causes of violence. So for example, we say things like historically underserved communities, <laughs> right? And so or, or at-risk youth, right? These are my two favorite ones that I had to decolonize out of my mouth recently. But it's, so what they're hinting at is that there's a whole system that intentionally terrorizes some groups of people. I don't know a better way to say it. And we're going to just lay it out flat. It's been terrorism that has happened to certain groups of people decade after decade after decade. And it gets more savvy. It's not as brutal as it was. It's not as necessarily obvious and in your face, right? But it's, it, and, and it is just as brutal. It's just happening in, in new ways, right? And so it dawned on me, I'm not, we got to call it what it is. If we're really going to address it, we got to call it what it is. So in grants, I'm not writing underserved, historically underserved communities. I'm writing historically oppressed communities because that's an intentional thing. It was, it's not just happenstance that they've been underserved. And to call them underserved implies that there was some point in time where they were served well, and then something happened and they stopped being served. No, 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 let's be clear. We were never served well. We were always kept out, robbed from, like, uh, like historically oppressed. Calling, calling youth at-risk youth, it's like there's some invisible thing that's out to get them and put them at risk of some stuff. No, these are targeted youth. Before their birth, they were targeted not to be successful. So when we when we call it what it is, then you got to be having those conversations. You can't just talk about violence in a vacuum or like there's something wrong with Baltimore. No, what has happened to Baltimore is the question. And when you call things what they are, you then have to look at, well, what is the, what does the it's crazy research, Dr. K, like. Not only, you can imagine that the amount of liquor stores that are in a community will somehow correlate with the amount of violence, right? Which also correlates with the amount of abandoned homes and blight and stuff you're going to see, right? So when you lay all of these maps, right, you, you lay, okay, where's all the murder? That's a map. Where's all the abandoned houses? You lay that map on top of the murder map? Guess what? Same map. Where are the liquor stores? Lay that on top. Guess what? Same mess, right? And it's so insidious that even there's research that shows at a liquor store, the amount of liquor advertisements and posters that they have in the actual window is more likely that more violence will happen in front of that liquor store. That's how connected 
things are, right? Our programming of who we're saying, who's worth what in our society. This is a worth problem, right? One of my cousins says, I can't stand when I hear my white friends say white, black lives matter. Cause the problem is not that black lives haven't mattered. Black lives always mattered to white people. They had a whole war over how much our lives mattered to them. It's not, but it's that white people have always gotten to decide how our lives matter and what our lives are worth. And so it's a worth, pro it's a problem of some people saying, well, some of us get unearned privilege and some of of us get undeserved oppression. I, I like that you put it that way. I mean, and Dr. King before, said, if you know. do to any group, Dr. King said, if you do to any group of people, and it's sad that it's still true right now, right? If you do to any group of people what has been done to Black people in America, you will get the exact same results. Same results. He said that then, and we're in 2022. And if, had we listened and been like, well, Dr. King, what is happening to Black people in America? So we won't get some result. Like, it's all, that's it. If we all pause and go, what is actually happening to certain demographics in our society? And is it fair? Is it right? Is it just? What would it look like if we did it differently? But guess what you're going to do when you start really making things just? You're going to start dismantling some things. Yep. That people make a lot of money off, right? Because capitalism is at the root of a lot of it. So if you start making opportunities fair and just and all of that stuff, if you do equity the way equity is supposed to be done, mm -hmm. you're going to dismantle most of the system as we know it and replace it with something else. And so that means at the root, so gets back to your question, at the root of it, really, Dr. K, is our own hearts and minds. Yeah, yeah. Because they are not machines running these systems of oppression. They are human beings participating, designing the policies, the laws, all of it. The hearts and minds of individual people and decision makers is the root of why we have so much violence. Yeah. Oh, I love that you said that. So now I know that earlier this year, at the beginning of this year, you called on people to come out. You're like, there are too many spaces. We want to bless all these spaces. Yes. You know, like, yeah, we want everybody to come out yes. and participate. Talk about the importance of the community as a whole saying, look, oh. we're going to actually go out and bless these spaces. I'm doing it. I'm bringing my children yeah. because it's on all of us to say That's this. right. Yeah. So one thing is because murder is this energy that makes people feel helpless, like as one little person, there's nothing you can possibly do about it. Right. That's how it makes you feel. And so Baltimore ceasefire 365 is really about trying to come up with things that make it obvious to people. You, you one little person. Yes, you can make a really big difference. Right. And even in a tragic situation. And so I heard somebody one time talk about the sacred space rituals. They attended one and they called it. They were like, oh, you're reclaiming the space. And I was like, oh, I like that. You reclaim the murder <laughs> space, right? So, and there's in my humanness, there's sometimes where I would feel some guilt that I wasn't able to get to all of the spaces last year. Mm -hmm. 
right? And that guilt got replaced with no sis. That's not what we're doing. We're not going to guilt ourselves. We are going to say, if it's something that want, that needs to be done, how can it get done? Because it's not all about you. I am called to be an example, right? I'm not called, I'm not supposed to be the only person that's out blessing murder space. It's not right. But I was called, it was put on me to do and give the example of how it can be done and what it feels like and why it matters. Right. So that then when we need a spots to be done, this idea that like, what would it be like if murder spaces was being, were being blessed all around the city at the same time? Right. Again, that oneness, that collective consciousness and like raising the vibration of that. So we put out this call for Reclaim Baltimore on January 3rd. Mm-hmm. On January, yeah, January 3rd. One, two, one, three. I don't remember. It was either the second or the third, one of those days. The second, because it was one, two at three o'clock. That's what it was. So what blew me away about it the most. So first of all, I was sick. I had COVID. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't, at the time that I planned it, I was planning on going out and doing spaces all day. And then I was sick and I couldn't go out. So it was amazing to watch because my feeling was always like, you know, I'm a, I could have done it myself by the time I waited for other people to do it. That's my personality, right? So to have to mm-hmm. not be able to go out and have to trust Baltimore is going to show up. People care that people have been killed in their neighborhoods. They're going to show up. Dr. K, when I tell you, not only do people show up, but two different mothers Mm. signed up and brought their families to go bless the spaces where their children had just been killed in, in December. And in January, they showed up to bless their own child's space. That's different to me like that. You right because it gives you something to do with your pain and Mm -hmm. to reclaim what's going on in your own heart, not just the space. But I'm showing up to say murder cannot have the last say in this spot. My love for my child, my love for this person I never met before, my love for, you know, that Baltimore, like we're losing people and the pain that that causes me. It all matters. I'm going to show up in this space and do it. And there were all kinds of people who showed up to do it. And then we did another one on MLK Day, but the weather wanted to act crazy. So I said, oh, well, move it to Ceasefire Sunday. A lot of people moved there as a Ceasefire Sunday. Some people were like, I don't care. Murder doesn't care what the weather is like when it shows up. So I'm going to show up and still bless my space today. So some spaces still got done. And again, I couldn't go out. Right. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so love it's just... When you give people, remind people of their own power, there is one little thing you can do and nothing is too small. Every little thing matters. Mm. So, so, so what if we got to a space, right? Now, so I'm just trying to imagine beyond, imagining yeah. beyond this violence. So we, there are no more spots that need to be reclaimed. We've reclaimed it. Yes, We're not going with this anymore. Mm-hmm. What is Erica going to do? Like, like, what's next for you? Let me tell y'all something. I hate to burst a bubble, but if one of my... <laughs> y'all better hope one of my birth children doesn't give me a grandbaby because y'all might lose me a little bit right there. Be I, already, right? I have grandchildren already. My stepson has grandchildren. So, I mean, has children. So right now he's my favorite child because he made me a grandmom. 
But like if one of my birth children that I pushed out of my body who still live in my house have a have a baby, y'all, that's it. I think somebody else might have to step in for a little while because being a grandmother is nothing like it in the world. However, um, we are still going to do peace challenge weekends and celebrations of life in Baltimore when there's no more murder, right? Because it's what Baltimore deserves. We deserve at least four times a year to just celebrate life just because we feel like it. We deserve not to get comfortable and say, well, it's no more murder. We must be as peaceful as possible. You got to keep recalibrating and checking on yourself. Am I as peaceful as I could possibly be? Let me practice it for three days, four times a year. Being as peaceful as I can possibly be. We all need that retuning, right? And so we always say, so with the ceasefire movement, we're creating the Baltimore we know exists already and the one we want to see every day. So we call us ceasefire every day. We want no murder every single day, right? We want celebrations of life every day. But when there really is no more murder, there's no reason why we shouldn't still be celebrating life when we feel like it. There's no reason why we should, you know. And I, what I'm going to be personally doing, I believe that they exist. Let me say that because I'm turning 50 years old this year. And I remember, I don't know what year it was, but I remember when I watched the news one day and it was a big story that Baltimore had a hundred murders that year. And me and my dad talked, we were like, oh my goodness, a hundred people got killed. Like you couldn't believe it, right? I remember that day, which means that I... Sorry, somebody was trying which means that I can live to see a day where we hit less than a hundred, right? Cause can you imagine right now, if we, if only, if a hundred people got killed, we would be sad, but we would be like, what? Well, we would be celebrating. Think about how crazy that sounds. That that would be unfortunately a celebration in Baltimore. If we say 99 people got killed. It would be, be a celebration. And it would be, and we would, and, right? So I believe that the day exists, that I'm going to see the day. I know it exists, but it's the me seeing it part, right? Where we don't hardly have any murder in Baltimore. I'm going to be sitting by some water. I'm going to be sitting by some water, just, just listening to the water, watching the water, looking at the sky. And I'm going to just be sitting there for a long time. I don't know what else I'm going to be doing, but you will find me sitting by a vast body of water. As we go into to Black History Month, I mean, we're talking a lot about what we can do. And, and the Black History Month theme this year, which is very powerful. I mean, we, as the former Secretary of Asala, we choose the theme, you know, two, three years ago, right? So the fact that two, three years ago, we chose Black health and wellness this year, how about, how about that? And to me, it's not just the pandemic of COVID-19, it's the syndemic of all these pandemics. So what do you do? because I know you, you're an example. What do you do as a black woman in this space? What does self-care and joy look like? <laughs> um, so I um, keep people around me who tell me the truth about myself. That's my first act of self-care. I'm gonna be keep it very real with you. Mm -hmm. I have an inner circle of people who tell me when I'm wrong, who tell me when I'm looking at something in a way that's not healthy, who 
tell me when I'm not taking care of myself. You know, people who send me, I have a friend who texts me at least every other day with a message that only says double your self care. Mm. But she knows me and she knows I'm probably not. So whatever you are doing says double that. Cause you, you're not doing enough. You know what I mean? So it really, and so it looks like following what I know my body is asking for. Your body, you can drag your body around. You cannot feed it. You cannot rest it. And your body will try its best to keep up. It'll keep pushing. Your body is an amazing thing, how loyal our bodies are to us, you know? And so I do my best to really listen. I stand outside in the grass and bare feet. It's one of the most amazing things. I used to be, I just started doing it last year because I was like, it's bugs in there. I'm not standing <laughs> but, but doing it I, I don't even have words for what that for what it does to me um so I do grounding exercises I meditate um people give me things all the time so I use prayer beads that people gave me and frankincense that people gave me and you know, prayers that people send me from Native American prayers to just all kinds of things like people and I believe people when they randomly see me and they say I'm praying for you girl like every time somebody says that to me I tell them I receive it because I I know that I would not be in my halfway right mind right now if there were not people constantly sending me positive vibes and energy and praying for me as well um I hug and kiss my children a lot I love my children even if they weren't my children I, I would like them as people so I surround myself with people who you know, <laughs> who are doing their best to be what they were called to be in the world as well. You know, in the wrap up, I have two more questions for you. This is where okay. I want to. Hear. So, so let, let's go beyond Erica for, for a minute. So say you have run on ahead as my grandmother used to say, run on ahead to see how the end is going to be. Like you were no longer with us. Okay. How do you want people to talk about you? What do you want them to say? Oh, oh. I think. I really just want people. If people say she loved Baltimore. Then they saw me, they got me, they understood. You know what I mean? Because I love Baltimore. I mean, I love Baltimore this much. <laughs> that if that's all people know about me after I'm gone, is that I love this place. That I'm not leaving this place until it's well. I don't care how many opportunities call me to pull me from here. So many people have told me, you know what? They might come where you might have to leave Baltimore to go get what Baltimore need. God don't want that for me. <laughs> to have to leave the place I love to go get what the place needs. That mean that thing wasn't the right thing because you know what I mean? I should have to leave one of the, one of the most one of the best places on earth. I should have to leave it to get what it needs. This world need to come bring Baltimore what it needs. Stop taking from us and just give us what we what we're worth, you know. And so people just really understand that I love this place and I ride for this city. 
and I love Baltimore when it can't see itself clearly because Baltimore made me. Every time somebody says whatever they think they see in me, my strength, my courage, my anything, whatever they see, I let them know Baltimore made that. Please don't get it twisted. Baltimore made that. So that's what I want people to know. Y'all can write that on my tombstone. She loved Baltimore. <laughs> and, I, and I know my job was well done. And my last question to you, uh, Erica Bridgeford, one of the 2022 Black Marylanders to watch, co-founder of the Baltimore Ceasefire, executive director of the Baltimore Community Mediation Center, a former Marylander of the year, uh, done TED Talks. If you could just leave us with one word, just one word. So you only have the breath to give us one word. What would that one word be? Love. Thank you so much. We tried hard to ask you questions that you haven't heard before. <laughs> Thank you for your time, Erica. We appreciate you and we respect everything you do. And we respect your love for Baltimore. It's contagious. Thank you. Thank you. Again. You have been listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K. Thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, words are a powerful medium that effectively examine critical moments in American history. So use yours wisely. Yeah.